When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort. So you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Hello, and welcome to TLS Voices, brought to you by The Times Literary Supplement. I'm Mika Ross-Southall. Shakespeare and Cervantes, the two writers most often associated with the beginnings of modern literature, are traditionally thought to have died on the same day in 1616, April the 23rd, exactly 400 years ago this year. In fact, Cervantes died on April the 22nd, and this, according to the Gregorian calendar, which was used in Spain, rather than the Julian, still in use in England, was 10 days before Shakespeare's death. Nonetheless, what undoubtedly brings them together is their ability to blend, bend, improve, and imitate past stories. And in turn, their work has had a mighty influence throughout the world for centuries. One of the most recent examples of this influence is Lunatics, Lovers and Poets, a new collection of original stories by contemporary authors which pays tribute to both of these giants of world literature. Mad characters abound here, of course, so does melancholy and familiar plots. Evidence for thoughtful reading of their sources is plentiful, Ruth Morse writes in her review of the collection in this week's TLS. A few engage with some feature of the intertext, some theme or problem which characterises both original and homage. After all, as Shakespeare put it in As You Like It, and so, from hour to hour, we ripe and ripe, and then from hour to hour we rot and rot, and thereby hangs a tale. Two authors who contributed to the collection, Ben Ockrey and Carmilla Shamsi, took part in a literary salon about Shakespeare with Sam Leith earlier this week at the Radisson Blue Edwardian Bloomsbury Street Hotel. As you'll now hear, they discussed how Shakespeare's work has become so influential, how it translates into other languages and cultures, Shakespeare as a kind of religion, his stagecraft, his trance-like verse, and a lot more besides. Please buy it at the end. This book, Lunatics, Lovers and Poets, 12 Stories After Cervantes and Shakespeare, to which my guests Ben Okri and Carmela Shamsi, Carmela Shamsi, sorry, Quite I know you hate it when people say Camilla. I wouldn't say hate. You yeah, threw two glasses of wine over me that already in order to <laughs> punish me proleptically for that. But are both very distinguished contributors, and it, we've cheated a bit because actually 
they both wrote stories that kick off from Cervantes, but they're going to talk about Shakespeare today. So please do turn off your mobile phones. And the only thing, for those of you who haven't been here before, the idea of this is that it's supposed to be much more of a conversation between everybody in the room than a sort of, you know, here we are on the stage and at the end we'll have three minutes for somebody to go. Do you write with a pen or a pencil? Um, it's supposed to be inclusive and encouraging, so please... Pencil. <laughs> Laptop. Come on. All right. Already we have the... The idea is basically, please feel free to dive in, interrupt, make a point. I'm not now, like not literally now, but as things go along, we'd like this to be much more of what my very affected English teacher used to call a conversazione. Um, so please do feel free to pile in. That's the idea. Anyway, I want to start by just asking both of our contributors, you know, Shakespeare is regarded as this great, you know, progenitor, this huge literary landmark. But here is this character who's very long dead, who stole all his plots from other people, whose, you know, apparatus of kind of soliloquies and bed tricks and cross-dressing and quibbles all looks slightly bizarre. Now, why, why does he have the status he's accorded? Why do we look to him? Should we? It's a, it's a difficult question because there are two answers and one is yes and one is no. And so the writer part of me says yes. Um, and, and partly it's because, of course, he does the bed tricks and this and that. He does great language. You know, just, you still, every time you go back and you open your collected works or whatever, and you open and you read those sentences out loud, and they're extraordinary. Um, and he does great psychology. And, and one of the things in Shakespeare that I've always particularly loved is how good he is on power. He's extraordinary on power. Um, you know, so for you know me growing up in Pakistan in years of military dictatorship, the issue of power is one that I think about a lot and what it does to people. Um, and you go to him and he'll tell you the answers to that. There's another part of it, of course, which is to do with the status of Shakespeare having to do with empire, certainly in, in parts of the world. And that becomes much more problematic. Um, that there's a certain way in which he's regarded around the world because there was a very specific empire project to put forward British culture as superior to the native cultures. And Shakespeare was right at the heart of that. Um, you know, there's a line in, in Morley's uh, Minute for Education about how a single shelf of European literature is worth all the native libraries of Arabia put together. And again, it was, it was Shakespeare, you know, that actually we've got this one guy and he's better than all your guys. And therefore we are better than you. Um, and that part of the way in which Shakespeare was used historically um, and the way he became a central figure. And it's actually very telling the huge number of Shakespeare translations in India in the 19th century. Um, the first one in 1852 and by around 1920, you have hundreds in different languages. And from the 20s to the 40s, that slows down and becomes almost non-existent because that's when the anti-British movement is happening. And so there's a clear correlation between when you're being anti-Empire, you're being anti-Shakespeare. Is that an unfair rap then? Yeah, I mean, he didn't ask for it. You know, I mean, he's a man he, with all he knew about power. I mean, you can just imagine it's in some way the grand irony 
um, that he's being used in the service of power in this way. Because if you go to the work itself, the work is brilliant. I mean, there's no way around that. The work is but completely Adam, brilliant. One of the things he, we have in our own, to our own canon, is the idea that not only is he better than your guys, he's mm. better than our guys. Yeah. You know, we, like mm. serious university departments, yeah. have an undergraduate curriculum that is mm. like, we've got the English literature paper and then we've got the Shakespeare paper. Mm. As if he's apart yeah. from and above and separate. Mm. I mean, what, what's um, your account of him then? I think, I think, um, Carl Miller. <laughs> <laughs> Um, is, is right about the dichotomy. Um, but I think the primary thing about Shakespeare, um, when you talk about the cross-dressing and the apparatus of his times that he uses in his plays, I think the, ex the extraordinary thing about Shakespeare is the way in which all of that is both important and not important at the same time. And he was definitely used as part of an empire project, and there was a strong reaction against him. Um, no, the whole thing about the, the, the using of um, iconic figures mm -hmm. for various empire projects has been as old as human history. Mm -hmm. um, they did it with the Greeks, mm. with the Romans. The Romans had that same relationship with the Greeks. We had it with the Romans. Mm. And then it, it, it continues. So I, I don't think that's the major problem. I think the real problem is the way in which Shakespeare is very dangerous for many different kinds of internal literary projects. Um, and that's part of his power, part of his mesmerism, and part of the way in which he acts very much like um, uh, a cancer cell. Um, there's a way in which he... You say dangerous and cancer cell, this almost sound like negative. Yeah, it is negative and powerful at the same time. Mm. It's, 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 two, it's two things, that's what I'm trying to say. Um, he, he has this incredible ability to take over structures of existing structures of thought and to work within them. Um, you look at the way in which he was used, for example, in South Africa. Mm -hmm. uh, you think about Julius, Julius Nyerere's um, early 1960s translation of Julius Caesar. This was at the height of the anti-empire um, 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 program. Um, and yet, there is still Shakespeare. There, there is still at work. Um, and so what it leads me to think is that he is, in some way, one of those five or six maybe rare exceptions in, 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 in literature in the sense that he's used for, and even when he's used for, he works against. He works as much against himself as against any project that he's been used for. Um, I've seen Shakespeare being used against the whole colonial project itself. Mm -hmm. um, in the West Indies, Shakespeare was used enormously, very powerfully, actually, particularly The Tempest. Um, and you have recent Booker Prize winners who ask very fascinating questions like, Shakespeare, what happened between Othello and Caliban? Mm -hmm. But I think all of that, all of that will dissolve but with time. The connection between Othello and Caliban is the other, the other, the other. Yeah. Mm. yeah, yeah, one almost manageable and the other really outside, um, almost as if there was a deterioration. Also, of one of them much more an actor, and the other one was what acted upon. They were both acted upon. Of course, the yeah. Caliban gives us that great line, you taught me your language, yeah, and my profit on it is I know how to curse, which is a very, you know, um, they use that a lot. useful thing for, uh, but actually, Ben, as you're talking, I'm listening to you talk about Shakespeare, and I'm thinking, you're talking about him in the way people talk about a religion, right? It can, it's lasted this while, it goes across cultures, because it's, 
there is a malleability to it as well because he does so many different things and there's spaces for interpretation. There is, there is, there is yeah. almost a Shakespeare religion yeah. and, and there has been for almost 200 years mm. and not just here. Yeah. Um, in France, Victor Hugo translated mm. him with religious fervor. Mm. Goethe translated him. Um, almost all the great writers in all the European nations found it an important project, part of their mm. own personal um, project of the discovery of the power of their own voice and of the unleashing of the themes of their times to translate Shakespeare. Shakespeare mm. was very important to Europe mm. um, in that sense. So when you say Shakespeare as a religion, he, I, wouldn't, I think many people would rather have Shakespeare as a religion than Christianity, mm -hmm. actually. I, I, would I wouldn't include myself amongst them, but I know a few <laughs> people who would. But are you concerned about that idea of the exceptionalism, that here's something into which you can project almost anything, and yet which has become this sort of enormous kind of cult that's seen as detached from, detached from tradition, you know, as you, you said, just one of four or five writers who can do this? Yeah, he is. It's, it's hard to get away from. It's, I, I hate to have to say it, but he is, he is worrying. But it makes him so useful, doesn't it? I mean, you know, again and again you hear these stories about countries of the world where there's incredible censorship in place. But because Shakespeare is sort of seen as, well, Shakespeare, so they can do versions. You can be sitting in a country where there's a dictatorship and doing Julius Caesar. And Julius, yeah, yeah. Um, you know, there's that way in which the amount of subversion that's allowed, and that's to me one of the interesting things about him. And it's because there is a great sense of play very often in Shakespeare. Um, and so there is, and it's to do with the sense of play, and it also has to do with the way of, you know, how religions can be the dark and the light side. That religions, you can use him. Religions don't play. Yeah, you can use him in both ways. You can use him in the service of power, and you can use him to undercut power, and that means everyone whether you're the powerless or the powerful, your question with Shakespeare becomes, how can I use him? And there's always an answer. Um, and and I, think I think that is part of the genius. I think it's because of right. his, I think that's because of his great variety. Mm. And um, I mean, if one's going to be really, really honest about it, it's um, the depth of his humanity, mm. the fact that he feels, he feels everybody. Mm. He feels all of his characters. Mm. He, it's a real challenge for us writers in a way. Mm to actually be able to enter so deeply into your greatest as well as into your most smallest, your most unimportant characters. There were no really unimportant characters in Shakespeare because once they spoke, they spoke with the fury of their humanity. They spoke with their wounds and their, their, their you, 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 you felt their living quality. I think maybe that is the great ideal for the writer, to be able to give the humanity to all of their characters, to care about all of them, to not judge them in a way. But it seems to be an amazing contradiction that you're saying at once, you know, these characters, creator words, come across as autonomous human beings who are felt to their depths and experienced by the author and by the audience as, as it were, real people with sort of determinate ideas and feelings. And that, on the other hand, here is something that is so opaque, so ambivalent always, so ambi also ambiguous at least, that it can be co-opted in the service of power, in the service of resistance, that it can be translated to any country or any culture in the world. That it can, I mean, how no, do there's, these there's, two there's, things No, there's no paradox mesh. there. There's no paradox there because where, where the, the thread, where the string, the musical string of humanity is resonated, that cuts, that's, that's humanity, that's, it doesn't matter where you come from, it, it, you're touched by it, you are, you are included in it. 
Um, so for me, Shakespeare is a lesson of how you go deep into something, and by going deep into something, you touch everything, rather than going, that is Shakespeare, Shakespeare or Tolstoy. I love Tolstoy, but Tolstoy for me is very much the horizontal writer. He has great width, whereas for me, Shakespeare has great depth. Um, and he touches, he touches the humanity of people. You, whether it's Othello, whether it's Iago, Iago being dragged off at the end of Othello. Mm -hmm. you, you hate the guy, you want his head chopped off, but at the same time, you, you're fascinated by him. You miss him, actually. Mm. You th the, the universe is slightly smaller because it's not there anymore, because it's been dragged away. That's, that's extraordinary. Do you feel the same way? Yeah, and I mean, I do also, for all that we think, you know, power wants to know how to use him, he isn't on the side of power. He's on the side of humanity. I mean, he understands that power comes, you know, with its set of problems. He understands the humanity of those in, in power. But um, in some ways, it's almost as though because he's got a certain stature now, um, power just wants to stand next to him. Yeah. Power wants to stand next to him, and the powerless want to enact him. That's the difference. So it's not that, that they're doing the same things. I mean, if power is going to put Macbeth on stage, no. I mean, not if they're really thinking it through, right? Um, it's not that his, it's not that they're so opaque. I mean, Macbeth is never going to tell you, write on Macbeth, right? I mean, it's not, no. the, it's opaque to a point. There are interpretations to a point. There are adaptations to a point. Um, but of course, the other thing with Shakespeare now is when, and this is where the fun of it comes in, is when someone has been in the world and had that stature long enough, you can turn incredibly playful, right? You, d you feel there are enough versions out there that have been, that have shown a fidelity. Um, and so now we can really run amok with it. Um, and one of the things that I particularly love about Shakespeare, so when I talk about Shakespeare in the Indian subcontinent, so you start with how he was the center of this empire project, and that's all true. It's also true that he is one of the biggest influences on the formation of what we now know as Bollywood film, right? He had great um, stories. Yeah, um, and it was down to a group, it's, I mean, there's a very specific historical trend. There was a group called the Parsi Theater Company. Um, and in the 19, late 19th century, uh, they formed out of a university acting troupe, really. And what the Parsi Theatre Company did was an extraordinary kind of thing, but they, the, the theatre came to India in the form that we would recognize it here via the British. And the first actual theatre was, I think, 1831 was opened. And 1852, you have your first full-length Shakespeare translation. So he comes very quickly on its heels. Um, and the Parsi Theatre Company took Shakespeare's plays and they took existing traditional plays um, and they mashed them. They mashed them, and I think they were able to do it because they weren't doing him in English. So they didn't feel the force of that language um, and that tradition. Uh, they were doing him in Gujarati and Urdu and Hindi, um, and they were having a lot of fun. And I'm going to read out there's a fantastic paragraph from an essay on the Parsi Theatre Company on what they did with Shakespeare in the 1860s, 1870s. So it says, in Parsi theater versions, one finds Portia singing passionate songs, Viola and Sebastian escaping in the opening scene of the play in a railway train, which during a thunderstorm plunges into the sea. 
Antony continuing to live while Cleopatra goes to her violent death. King Lear is turned into a comedy. And the plots of Richard III and King John are fused into one single play. In an adaptation of Hamlet called Khun e Nahak, which means the unjustified murder, the Prince of Denmark is so thoroughly Indianized that his court is converted into a medieval Indian one where princesses perform Kathak dance, begum stewed betel nut leaves, and instead of drinking wine from the poisoned cup, Gertrude had to make do with milk. <laughs> <laughs> right, so this is, th that's Plus the two I'm to interrupt you and say, yeah. What you know, yeah. if you're not doing Shakespeare yeah. in the English language, yeah. kind of what's left, given that the stories are stolen or adapted, you know, in a sense, Look, he, he, that he steals the stories, no, but, but, he, stories, but he improves on them. Yes. You know, I mean, so if you take the comedy of errors, the play it's adapt it's based on, which is the Merrickmas twins, has a single set of twins, and Shakespeare says, let's have two sets of twins, and the humor doesn't double, it sort of quadruples. Yeah. And um, if you also see what he right. did with Hamlet in yeah. relation to the revenge's um, yeah. tragedy, he made the tragedy, the, the revenge, existential. Um, yeah. he, has a, he, has a, he has an extraordinary way of uh, not just improving the stories, but he bends them. Mm. Um, so Hamlet, Hamlet opening with the ghost um, is, 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 a, is, a, is a great innovation, which goes back to the Greeks in a way, but goes beyond it. Um, I had, a, I had a professor at Trinity College who used to, used to have long arguments about Hamlet. Um, his name was Leo Salengar. And he, Hamlet was the single text that he studied for 30, 40 years. It was his text. This is at Trinity. And I'd have long conversations with him. And he'd say, Ben, you know what? There's a problem with Hamlet. I can't get away from the problem with Hamlet. You writers should try and fix it. I said, what's the problem? And he said, the ghost. And I've thought about that for 20 years. Salingar had a problem with the ghost, but the ghost makes Hamlet. Mm -hmm. You remove the ghost from Hamlet and you don't quite have Hamlet. It is an impossible problem, because either you believe it or you don't believe it. If you believe it, you've got one kind of play in your head. And if you don't believe it, you have another kind of play. Mm -hmm. The ghost is what makes, partly what makes Hamlet capable of being universal. So it's able to play in Africa, it's able to play in Nigeria. We're great with ghosts in Nigeria. Um, it's able to play in South Africa, it's able to play in India. Well, here's the interesting thing, though, with, with Hamlet in Pakistan, because I, I was talking to a university professor, and he said, of course, within the Pakistani tradition and, and in many parts of the Muslim world, the idea is if your brother dies, you marry his widow. Oh, we, have, we have that that's, in Nigeria. We right, have that that's in some the correct Nigeria thing too. to do. Yeah. That is the noble thing to do. So, what is Hamlet's problem? Um, <laughs> <laughs> right? I mean, yeah, so, so it makes it makes Hamlet this. You know, he he's in the wrong, um, and he's further in the wrong because a ghost is seen as a sort of trickster character, um, very often. So the ghost is more likely to be sent by the devil. So the ghost has been sent by the devil. Here's, you know, nice Claudius who goes and does the, the good Muslim thing. It's, it's, not, clear, it's not clear play. that the ghost is It set. still plays, but it just plays with Hamlet being wrong. Or <laughs> Hamlet being, you know, it, you know he's, he's not coming from a virtuous standpoint. But it still works because he's still the son you know, you can still understand that this is your father, he died, you're sort of obsessed with it, and, you know, you don't like the idea of your mother being... So you understand it, but he doesn't have a larger morality on his side. So it becomes a different play, but it's still a play that works. That's very interesting. I want to ask yeah. briefly, just because both of you, I mean, you've grown up in 
or you had your secondary education in societies, you know, I mean, many English people who've grown up in this country have had Shakespeare, you know, age 10, you're doing Romeo and Juliet, and, you know, Palm to Palm, Sally Palm's Kiss. I think, talking to you both before, mm. actually the experience is identical, mm. more or less, in Karachi and in Lagos. Is Shakespeare, I mean, does he occupy the same place in the canon? doesn't occupy the same place in Nigerian literature that it does here in, in, in English literature. Of course not, because he's, he's central to the culture here. But he permeates it. He's, he has a presence. He has, um, is he an encounter with the other? What do you mean? I mean, is he regarded, I and mean, we talked a little bit about this idea of sort of colonialism and of Shakespeare in power. You know, when, I'm just interested in the angle you age 10, 12, 13, 14. What, when you come to Shakespeare, how is it presented to you? If you're a schoolchild in Lagos, is it here's a universal beacon of no, world literature? I think I think I think we encounter Shakespeare first. Um, when, when we went because we went through that period I told you about when a lot of um, European literature was kind of like banned as a way of making space for African literature to actually yeah. have its dialogue with its people, and then that passed, and then it was reinstated. And I think a lot of people, a lot of people at school, encountered Shakespeare first, actually through the speeches, through the beauty of those speeches, those great speeches. And most Nigerians that you meet now, if you mention the word Shakespeare, they will have one Shakespeare quotation that they learned from will very early. Will it be like on. a soliloquy or one it'll of the commentary speeches? It'll be, it'll be one of the great speeches, one of the great soliloquies. It'll be a speech from, say, uh, Julius Caesar, mm -hmm. friends, Romans, countrymen. The point I'm trying to make is that it is through language, through rhetoric, in a way. Um, through the beauty of language, expressing always a powerful emotional thought. So there's a deep emotional relationship with the truth. You're talking about the powerless. Mm -hmm. um, I think the thing about, about the powerless encountering Shakespeare, it's surprise that Shakespeare feels them, includes them, is aware of that powerlessness and its power. Um, and I think it's that quality that, that, that that still plays. Mm. It's one thing that, that Salman Rushdie writes about in his introductions to Lunatics, Lovers and Poets is how good Shakespeare is on the low, yeah. you know, the, mm. the tavern. Yeah. Um, and he can do that as well as the kings. You know, yeah. And I think that is one of his, gr you know, he seemed to just be interested in human beings. Yeah. You know, and human psychology in a way that is quite extraordinary. I mean, we do have to push back against the idea of the universal. Because there really is no such thing. And there's a wonderful essay called um, Shakespeare in the Bush, which is written by an anthropologist who goes and lives for a while with, with a tribe who, unlike those of us in Lagos and Karachi, have grown up completely outside a world that knows the Western world. Um, and she, one night they sit around, they, they're great storytellers, and they say, tell us a story from where you come from. So she tries to tell them Hamlet, and she can't because... As she starts, they keep asking questions that she doesn't know the answers to in uh, terms she, of Hamlet. She, she was a bad storyteller. <laughs> I'm sorry. Well, she was I'm sorry. If I, if, I was, if I were to tell him that story, <laughs> yeah. I would, uh, I would yeah, answer those it's questions. It's because she wasn't so a storyteller. She, was she was a bad yeah, storyteller. Yeah, she was a storyteller, so, so she couldn't improvise on Shakespeare. So she would start with, you know, here's this king, and no, but they want to know about the tribes and what are the structure of the tribes that Hamlet is from. Mm. Um, and there are certain rules around the tribes and interactions. And Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. 
Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. She realizes that because... She can't improvise as a storyteller. All she's got is the text of Hamlet. And the text of Hamlet is posing for these people questions that she hasn't thought of and the answers to which are not built into the play. Now, of course, if Ben were to go, it's a, it's he a, would be able to hang out. Ben would hang out and, and, and recognize the structures they lived in and would know how to place Hamlet yeah, within yeah, it. Yeah, no, no, but right? I, think, I don't think that's a very good example okay. of against, shot no, down. No, against the universal. <laughs> Mm. Um, I think that's just a really good example against some people being able to... Yes, a bit, <laughs> yeah, yeah. 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 It's all kicking off now, that's yeah. what we were looking for. Are there any anthropologists in the room? No. Right, we can say what we like about <laughs> There's a good story about Lenny Henry hating Shakespeare at school. I don't know if you've heard the story. He hated Shakespeare at school for all sorts of reasons, partly because of the empire reasons mm. that um, Carmilla mentioned earlier. <laughs> and, then, um, and then he got cast... In, in Othello, and he had to actually read Shakespeare properly for himself for the first time. And he was converted. And, and I think the reason why he was converted was he read Shakespeare out aloud. Mm. Mm. It's really different when you read him out aloud. The words live differently. Even when you don't understand, because you're right, sometimes he is very obscure. And he does have um, a tendency to load his language um, in a way that sometimes you need to twist your head around in f- three or four knots. He does that a lot in plays like Love's Labour Lost to understand what he's saying. But when you read it out aloud, something else lives in it, um, and he comes alive in a, well, it in an really extraordinary easier, way. It's really easier, isn't it, to... You, know, you can give a 15-year-old a, the text of Henry V yeah. and, and they'll, they'll fall struggle and let them watch Kenneth Branagh doing it, and they'll... Yeah. They'll, 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 they'll hear the rhythm, but, you know, it's actually much yeah. more... Because of the inner music. Does that actually... That inner music thing, is that something that's helpful to a novelist or prose writer? I think inner music is always important to... Um, I've, I've, I mean, people tend to think that prose is in so, some kind, stands in some kind of inferior status to poetry and therefore is easier. But actually, prose is much more difficult precisely because it doesn't have many of the props that poetry has, the, the, the repetitions, the, 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 the jolting language... Because of that, because of the, the simplicity and the inner music of prose, it's much more difficult to write good prose. 
And mod the modernists sen sense that. And that's why people like Ezra Pound used to go around saying that poetry has to at least be as good as prose. So yes, it's, the inner music is very, very important. But more than the music, actually, in relation to Shakespeare, is that remembering that actually all of, all of these characters that you're creating, you're responsible for them. You're responsible for their life. And it's very easy to forget that, that we can't really afford to have minor characters. We just really, the word minor character shouldn't even come into our perception. Mm -hmm. Even if they appear on the page for, you know, just, on, just, just briefly, something of their fury and of their truth should, should come through. And Shakespeare constantly reminds one of that. So it's not just the inner music, it's the, the inner humanity of every single character and the love that we must have for them, even when we hate them. There's a, there's a great bit, Susanna Clapp was writing something once in, about Angela Carter, um, and she said one of the things Angela Carter loved in Shakespeare, and let's remember Angela Carter could do the greatest twirls of a sentence, and what Angela Carter loved in Shakespeare was his ability to write a line such as, the ships arrived from France. Yeah. You know, and she has a point that, that he could do the, he can do the twirls, but then he can also do the very simple declarative sentence that carries meaning. Um, that King's Davis is complaint about Martin is that he can't write <laughs> enough sentences that are just like he finished his drink and left the room. Yeah, and it's sentences like that that yeah. give, 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 give writing its truth. But it, you know, so the, he does, there are some that are con convoluted and there are some words that have simply gone out of the language, but there is everywhere in all the plays, there is so much else. So um, I remember being... I mean, I suppose if I were to talk about a love affair with Shakespeare, I mean, I read, you know, I knew of Shakespeare since before I can remember, but the, I know very specifically the love affair moment, um, which is I was 13 or 14, and my sister was doing Julius Caesar for her GCSEs. Um, so it was lying then, because I picked up every book in reach, I, was, I picked up Julius Caesar. And I'd seen, I mean, I had read it before, I'd seen it on TV, or I mean, you know, what Marlon Brando I had seen as Mark Antony. And there was something with this particular moment when I read it. Um, and it was Anthony standing over the body of his dear friend Caesar and saying, oh, pardon me, thou bleeding piece of earth, that I am meek and gentle with these butchers. And my entire body just went into shivers. You know, it was such a physical, visceral response in a way that nothing I'd read until that point in time had done for me. Um, and about you know, three years later, I read Nabokov writing about the spine test of literature. Um, <laughs> and I thought that's it, that Shakespeare will pass the spine test we more have to, often. We have to remember that Nabokov yeah. was the same person who had yeah. a problem with um, Don Quixote. So I have... I have we have yeah, our reservations yeah. about <laughs> Nabokov yeah. on this. Yeah. Um, so that there, is, there, is, there are always so many moments where he is capturing something so profound and true and human um, and moving without the difficulties. Um, and I suppose part of what you do, I mean, if you're with students or with people who haven't grown up, is to point them towards those moments. You have to think too about Shakespeare that's worth remembering, is that he always, I've, I've, I have my theory as to why this is the case, but he always writes on two registers. There may be three, there may be four, but definitely on two registers. He has this complex register, this rich register, and at the same time he's got this simple register. And he uses those two registers all the time. So whenever he has his flourish, yeah. he has the simple as well. And it's usually the same thing. So he says the same thing in a flourish as he says simply. And I think it's because of the double nature of his audience um, and the fact that Shakespeare himself, I feel, 
had a greater feeling for the, those who stood, those who, you know, those who didn't have the fancy seats. So he gives the fancy seats people their fancy stuff, and then he gives the people what he's really saying. And he's always doing that. I think it's always worth being patient with him. Mm. Go past the difficult mm. twirls, and Shakespeare will give you his, um, the green making the red, the speech from Macbeth. In Canadian. All right. Okay. Do it now. In Canadian. But of course, it's also worth sending them to the theatre or to, because he gives us so much visually. I mean, you know, that, that wonderful thing about that Mark Anthony moment is he's just agreed to shake the hands of the men who killed his friends, and they have all dipped their hands in the blood of Caesar. So he's shaking these hands that are dripping with his friend's blood, and then he goes and says, oh, pardon me, thou bleeding piece of earth. Right? So, I mean, just the visuals of that. You don't need to, yeah. you cannot speak English. And this is, it's now one of the interesting things in Shakespeare, because we know the play so well, some of us. Um, how many of you went in 2012 to the Globe when they had their Shakespeare around the Globe season, right? Um, this was an extraordinary thing. I hope the Globe does it again, um, which was they had all of Shakespeare's plays performed, each one by a troupe from a different country um, in their different languages. And I went to about 10 or 12 of them, and partly because you knew, if you knew the plays, you wouldn't even, you know, you could follow along. Um, and they had certitudes which would just give you so the synopsis of the scene. Richard II in Arabic, I was moved to tears by what I knew was um, let us sit upon the ground and tell sad stories about the death of kings. I knew it was that speech, um, even though I don't speak a word of Arabic. Um, and I found myself weeping at it. The South Korean Midsummer Night's Dream was extraordinary. Um, you know, and there is, it's part of that play now, is that he's, he's become so well known that actually even though the greatest thing in him is the language. You can move in a different, uh, well, no, all not, the humanity. No, no, yeah, not just yeah. the language. He, he's, yeah. he's, also, he's also a master of stagecraft. Mm. He, could, he could, just with what's going on on stage, um, is, it, is it Humpback Richard, who's mm. actually seducing the woman whose husband, yeah. you know, mm -hmm. he's, he's just killed. And mm. it's, yeah. the husband is literally there on the floor. Yeah. And he's, he's doing this. It's mm. kind of extraordinary boldness of conception. It's like mm. he sets himself these, these incredible problems and says, mm. okay, let's see if I can get out yeah. of this. Let's see if I can make this work. <laughs> yeah. and, he, and he does it. He does it by language. He does it by, by this boldness of mm. spirit. Yeah, he, great, great, sense of, great sense of stagecraft. Just actually watching Shakespeare without even understanding what's going on is fascinating. Yeah. So there's, there's this, there, there's these triple levels as well, mm. um, the visuality. Not many great playwrights actually have that tremendous visuality. Mm. Bernard Shaw, I love Bernard Shaw, doesn't have it to the mm. same degree. Ibsen, you actually do need to know what's going on with Ibsen mm. a lot of the time. Just, I mean, just Carmen was saying her kind of the book of mm. spinal moment mm. was Julius Caesar. Mm. And we talked an awful lot about Hamlet, but you know, there's a lot of Shakespeare. Has, uh, is there anyone else out here who's kind of experience has been of a different play that's absolutely, I mean, I confess for me, probably the one is The Tempest. Mm. You know, yeah, like, Tempest. it lives with me in a way that the, the other ones, mm. well, they all do, but, mm. you know, I don't want to get into anything as so vulgar as the, you know, what's your favourite, but, yeah, um, yeah. You know, what's we've spoken an awful lot yes. about Hamlet. Let's, what, go, let's what, go to what, that what level. What, you know, who's got favorite? a spinal moment? Midsummer Night's Dream. <laughs> Why? I think because I came to it so young and it had fairies mm. that that seemed <laughs> to me. Yeah. Really, yeah. 
I was reading a friend's book, um, which was about music and trance. A very, very powerful argument it had about the way in which music actually works on us, is that it induces this trance-like state, sometimes many trances that we're not aware of. And I think um, certain texts, when you, especially when spoken, because of the incantatory nature of language, um, actually does the same thing. Um, I think language can do that, can create these little, these little sinkholes in, into which the mind goes. And when it enters, when it enters there, something, everything else changes. Um, and I, th I think, again, it's got to do with that inner music, um, but also the way in which characters in include one another. Uh, if you take parts, if you take parts in a Shakespeare play, because I've done readings with kids, and you assign parts, something changes as they get further and further into the reading of their parts. And I don't think it's just the action alone. I think something happens in the language and the way in which we ha people have to interact with one another through the language, inside the language, behind the language. I think that's, that's fascinating. Language as trance is what I'm trying to talk about mm -hmm. as well, especially spoken. Um, I, I'm not so sure that reading, reading in one's bed sits the, has that same trance-like quality, although some people swear. Certain texts have done that to them. Don Quixote did that to me. We haven't mentioned him. Yeah, we haven't mentioned him. <laughs> Died on nearly the same day. And interesting, one of Shakespeare's later plays, because he talked about him being a great stealer of stories, he actually, Cardenio, actually borrows a story from mm. Don Quixote. So it was a strange moment in which these two great writers kind of intersect in the English language. The play's lost, so. Actually, one of the things Salman Rushdie says in his introduction to Lunatics, Lovers and Poets is, which I, I think is, a, I mean, he's trying to kind of bring together what he says, essentially, Shakespeare and Cervantes both had this idea that, unlike the sort of austere French tradition where you had tragedy over here and mm. comedy over yeah, here, that they could yeah. both yeah. mash things together. Yeah. Yeah. And we've, you know, the word mash has been used mm. yeah. already tonight. Yeah. Yeah. I know she thinking this is keep mashing up, bring up. Mash. Yeah, yes. exactly. Yeah. Is that unique to them? Is that something that's that's their? Pr I mean, well, nothing Salman is unique says to says them because everything primary. they've done, we've done since because they did it. And was done also probably done but before. But probably was done before. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, Chaucer had a bit of mash going. Yeah, yeah. So Chaucer yeah. had a yeah. mash I, th I, I, I think I think that's one of the reasons why they. Inf that's why one of the reasons why they've infiltrated the world um, so well, actually, because certainly. In the African tradition, tragedy blurs into comedy. You watch those great Yoruba plays, those great Yoruba tragedies, and there's laughter in there, side by side with great horror and death and grief. And I but is that, that's a separate tradition, do you think? Or can no, you ascribe that to the no, same sometimes, in, sometimes in the same tradition. Isn't that, isn't that there in, yeah, I mean, to some degree in the Indian tradition? Because it's in life, right? I mean, yeah. when there's there's really horrific, maybe not, you may come to a point of horrific things where the that possibility of humor disappears, but when you're at the, the mildly horrific or the somewhat tragic, <laughs> um, the, the, imp the human impulse or the Pakistani impulse, whichever it is, is to make a joke. Yeah. You know, how you, that something needs a break or, or that even if you don't make a joke, something will happen that is unwittingly funny and you or someone will notice it. Someone will notice it, and then you're you're in the middle of tragedy, and you notice a comic moment. Um, so it's much more real than these situations. I mean, I love the Greek tragedies, you know, and I love the way that they 
will start on a note of tragedy and then the tragedy escalates and, and you think it can't escalate any further and it escalates and you think it can't and it keeps escalating and escalating and that is it's taking that one note and carrying it further than you thought was possible but that isn't life and of course art doesn't have to be life but I think what both Shakespeare and Cervantes do you know, is say, actually, these things are cheap There's by Joe. There's a mixed, yeah. Um, yeah. In, in the it's world around us. There's also an element us. to that of the yeah. thing that any witty quotation is always a trip to Oscar Wilde. Yeah. And that, yeah. you know, yeah. <laughs> any recognition of how art might reflect life is yeah. attributed yeah. to these guys. Yeah. I mean, how much do you think it's possible mm. to, as it were, extricate mm. Shakespeare's power on us, you know, as a you know, figure in a canon as a, you know, a sort of dominant culture figure. And it, you, from the fact he's already there, the fact that hmm. everything about Shakespeare now carries kind of mythic resonance and this kind of power that's partly to do with the fact that it is Shakespeare and that because it's so deeply woven into the culture, it suddenly acquires that hmm. kind of... I mean, I think very quickly. Uh, I don't separate I, that from his own effects. I don't. I don't. I, I wouldn't say. I mean, I once gave myself the project of reading my way through all of Shakespeare's mm. plays, and there are some I didn't get on with. Yeah. Um, so who I, I, remembers I'll, what happened in King John? Come on. <laughs> yeah. But but oh, exactly. Henry, exactly. Oh, the three maybe. Henry the Sixth, yeah. even. Let's face it. Come. Yeah. But that's what I mean. Is it is, it, is yeah. that is yeah. it the fact that they're the lesser known plays that they don't seem to have much literary effect, whereas the plays that are baked into our culture in so many ways. But feel like have sort of literary effect. Yeah, but they're baked yeah. into the culture for a reason. Yeah. Yeah. It's not for want of trying that the other yeah. plays didn't get us baked. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. Um, but I think actually, I think the opposite can also happen, which is that because Shakespeare has the place in the culture, I think people actually might be resistant to the idea yeah. of Shakespeare and think yeah. these yeah. are claims made for him, but come on, you know, he was just one right, you know. Um, so I think it the, it, the, does. it can yeah, work okay, that way as well. And, and I go through I go through phases when I you know have to have a moratorium. I have to sort of mm. keep away from Shakespeare. I go for sometimes a year, mm. and I said, no Shakespeare anywhere near me, please. <laughs> um, and I, I think it's healthy. I think I think I think you don't want to get over soaked in Shakespeare. You don't want to. Um, I understand T. S. Eliot's resistance mm. to plays like Hamlet. Mm. Um, it's interesting that the modernist, the great modernist, had had a Hamlet thing. T. S. Eliot. Mm you know, mm. fired his salvos, and Joyce fired his salvos. It's like, yeah, I, I understand it. I, I, th I, think, I think it's, um, I think there can be too much dominance. A it's the male writers, isn't it? The yeah. women writers don't fire the dominance in their way. It's a very edible <laughs> thing, come on, <laughs> in some way. You want to kill Shakespeare. Yes. Right, he's a father. No, he exactly. It's, well, right. Harold Bloom, who not only yeah. sure tried. said that Shakespeare yeah. invented Yes. Human interiority also said. That I think I think you I think you I think you overstated his case there a bit. Possibly a tiny yeah. bit. Yeah. <laughs> Does anybody feel like they could do without Shakespeare for a year or two, or have done without Shakespeare for all of their lives? And go with the comedies. I think you know. Yeah, I mean, things yeah. like as you like as it, you like and, it. And, I love as and you like much it. ado yeah. about nothing. Yeah. Also, you know, Shakespeare. What was it? 1564 to 1616. He's got some really good women. <laughs> he does. He's got some really good women. He's got some really good women who are men. <laughs> He's got some really good women who are men, but it's part of it. But also, there are all these points where, and they're very good female friendships. In the, I mean, there are all kinds mm. of things, that, you know, that yeah. are uh, Winter Steel, Pauline and the Winter Steel, one of the lesser known characters, but, you know, I just, I love her. Um, her best friend is, is sort of, you know, killed by the king, and she goes to the king, and she basically says, You deserve to rot in hell for what you've done. 
It's yes. an extraordinary yeah. kind of thing. Yeah. Um, or, or the women who love who, the women who love the sons of their father's enemies. Yeah, they have, you know, it has mm. that wonderful mm. transgression. I love I yeah. love his transgressive yeah. mind. Yeah, yeah. and of course, Othello is an extraordinary play because it does within it carry a sort of language around racism and how people view themselves as other and all kinds of things that are, you know, far more complex than you tend to think someone in the 16th century would have sat and thought about. I think Shakespeare also is very good at reminding us that a lot of things that we think, you know, we're so progressive and wonderful that we figured out now, um, no, right. Was there anything that Sod got wrong? Well, he got uh, King John. King John, <laughs> Henry VIII. Titus Andronicus. Oh, yeah, no, God. Now the floodgates open. Andronicus <laughs> was horrendous and racist. Aaron the Moor. You know, you ask, how did he get from Othello to Caliban? How did he get, get from, from Aaron the yeah, Moor yes. to Othello? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that was extraordinary, right? So, I mean, no, he has, he has some horrible moments. He can be really, really bad. That's partly why we writers love him, because he's a reminder that you can be really, really bad, and that's okay, because he'll still remember the good stuff. When there's such a long and interesting over, then even the plays that don't work as well become interesting in the ways that, you know, Titus Andronicus, you can see as a place where he's starting to work on stuff that later will become really interesting. So Aaron the Moor, I think, becomes eventually bo both Iago and Othello. I'm not the first person to think it, of course. Um, but how that character who doesn't entirely make sense in Titus Andronicus, when you separate him into two people, he's brilliant. So there's so much of interest even in the stuff that isn't working because he's and keeps, this is what we love. He, he works. Keeps, he keeps, he keeps asking keeps questions. Working. He, keeps he keeps asking questions. He keeps asking questions he doesn't, of he doesn't, himself. He doesn't let, he doesn't let yeah. things go. He goes yeah. back to them over and over yeah. again. You can see him coming back to his early yeah. plots, his early unsuccessful stories. Yeah. He's always reworking them and bringing them back. Shakespeare would um, not be one of those writers who says, I don't read my reviews. <laughs> Shakespeare, I'm sure, would read his reviews and he would, he might it, be annoyed and all that, but he would think about them. And when someone made a good point, it may take him five years. But eventually, think they had a good point there about this play that and, didn't work. And, and, and there's a play. And there's a play in that. Yeah. And there's a, that's a good point, and there's a play in yeah. it. Yeah. Yeah. You know, yeah. he was that guy. And also, he wasn't yeah. afraid. He wasn't afraid to repeat himself yeah. with variation. Mm -hmm. um, so, as you like it, much ado about nothing. There are very a lot of twin plays, aren't there? Mm. Um, he he he's 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 a great he's a great variationist. That's another. Oh, there's a hand up at the back. Speak. Yeah. Well, all I really want to say is Macbeth. Yes. Because no one said Macbeth yet, and I love Macbeth. Yeah. But I'm not nearly articulate enough to be able to explain exactly why. But I. Why do you like Why do you like Macbeth? I, well, it's because it's the shortest play Shakespeare wrote, and you're lazy that way. <laughs> 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 it is the shortest play. That sounds, yeah. That sounds about right. No, go on. Yeah. 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 Um, and it's the only play. It's yeah. the only play where Shakespeare gets an extraordinary effect. From just someone knocking at the door. Yes. <laughs> it's the yeah. Say again. Beelzebub. Yeah, the Beelzebub. It's amazing. It's one of my favorite plays. Um, and it is, you know, in that way that I go back to power a lot. It's extraordinary on power. It's also, someone pointed out, the only really happy marriage in Shakespeare. <laughs> <laughs> Which it's, is disquieting. Oh, well, all the marriages are off stage. Lady Macbeth, of course, is a fascinating character. She's more fascinating than Macbeth because she is the incredibly strong one, 
or the incredibly evil one. However, you know, she makes him do it. She makes him go and kill Duncan. Um, but then she just, the falling apart, the conscience, you know, the, it's sort of crime and punishment. Yeah. Before crime and punishment. And also the, also the thing about right. Macbeth is the way in which it anticipates yeah. um, psychoanalysis yeah. and yeah. modern psychology yeah. by three, four hundred years. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, the fact that she enacts, mm. enacts this condition in her, in yeah. her sleepwalking. I think yeah. the sleepwalking of Lady Macbeth is mm. one of the spookiest things in all of Shakespeare. Yeah. Yeah. What will these yeah. hands ne'er be clean? Yes, I mean, yes. you know, he's got the dagger. Yes. Is this a dagger I see before him, me? You have, what to, will say, these you have hands to say it like you have to say it like Robin Williams. <laughs> <laughs> Robin, you have to say like Robin Williams. Is this a dagger I see here before my eyes? Yeah. <laughs> um, so it is, and also of course the witches are fantastic. So again, it's witches Shakespeare, are great. Shakespeare everyone knowing loves, how to give everyone the, loves the audience, witches. you know, so it is an incredible psychological insight, but it's great. You know, dramaturgy. But it's also great philosophy as yeah. well, because it poses a really, really yeah. profound question. Yeah. And the question is this, is something fated to happen mm. because it was prophesied that would, it would happen? Mm. The whole play hinges on how you perceive the question of fate and destiny. The whole play hinges on that. Because these three, which they prophesied this for, 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 for Macbeth. So the question is, if he had done nothing, would it have happened? Yeah. Did he have to do something? Could he not do something? Mm. But the fact that it was prophesied, the fact that it was stated yeah. um, in such a compelling way, sets this big, big question about, mm. about the nature of destiny and what we do in relation to what we are told. Um, Oscar mm. Wilde is fa was fascinated by that same question in one of his short stories. If your fate is told to you, do you feel that you have to yeah. live that fate or do you feel that the fate will come to you? It's a big, mm. big question. Is life destined mm. or do we create our destiny mm. by our actions? It's a, yeah. So I think that question in the middle of the play also yeah. deeply yeah. fascinates us because we're all fascinated by having our, our destinies mm. told and hinted at. Fortunately, our destiny is that we have to end. Um, well, we all have our exits and our entrances. I've been, I've been saving it up because I knew Ben would sooner or later say something about destiny. Um, but may I say what an enormous pleasure it has been to have Ben Okri and Kamala Shamsi um, talking about Shakespeare because you are both completely brilliant and know Shakespeare inside out and have very, very interesting things to say about him. And it's been a great pleasure having this excellent audience who also have great things to say about Shakespeare. And while we're at it, I think we should also say thank you to Sam thank for Sam. having um, orchestrated a beautiful discussion without yeah. being overbearing and over Shakespeare and himself. <laughs> no, enough. Thank you. A great pleasure. Thank you. Thank you. You can read more about Shakespeare from leading Shakespeareans in this week's TLS, which also includes Murder by Poison, Delacroix's Legacy to Modernism, South Africa's Looming Crisis, Challenges to the New Atheists, and much more. To find out more about the TLS and to read a free selection of pieces from this week's issue, go to our website, the-tls.co.uk. You can read the TLS in full every week in print or via our app, which is available on iTunes and in the Amazon App Store. The TLS, life in every word. Mom. 
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear, and fine leather goods, all at 50% to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. 